AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T Threat Track for November 17th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we're joined by Manny Ortiz. Welcome, Manny. Thank you. Matt Kaiser. Welcome, Matt. And online, welcome back, Jim. You've been away for a little bit. It's good to see you again. Good to be back. I'm Brian Rexrode, and we're going to, uh, I guess, jump into, or I guess, revert for a bit. Uh, last week, we talked a lot about ransomware. And uh, we had a number of aspects of this. But one of the things that uh, I guess I tried to point out <laughs> was that there are several layers of security that you really should have in place to protect you against these things. And I kind of fumbled a little bit on that. You know, even the best football players fumble. So uh, what I'd like to do is just uh, revisit that for a moment and uh, just sort of point out that there are really six protection measures. I tend to think in general about five, you know, for typical malware. First one is an email filter. And we talked about that last week. Second one, user awareness. That is, once the email gets onto a user's desktop, they should be screening it, taking, you know, making sure that there's purpose behind it, that it looks like it's come from a logical source. So you need a good security awareness program to make sure that the, the folks that are receiving these emails are in a good position to make good judgment about that. Third is, and this one I neglected to point out, is make sure your systems are patched. If they're patched, they're less likely to be vulnerable to an attack. So. Uh, you want to make sure that they're patched and not, uh, not readily exploitable. Uh, and then the fourth we did point out, which was uh, having antivirus on the platform will help to detect things that perhaps, uh, you know, are, are relatively recent. There may be, it may be a zero day, in which case you don't have, I mean, hopefully the zero day is beyond the zero day and antivirus is able to detect it. Uh, but perhaps the system isn't patched for that yet. And then the next one would be to look for the command and control. Now, Manny, I think you talked about one last week that didn't really have a command and control. That's correct. So that yep. would be a weakness uh, potentially. But the point here is that if you have a good threat analysis capability on your network, you have the opportunity to pick up on the indicators that systems have been infected despite these other activities. And then last but not least is to have a good backup in place so that if all of those others fail, that you're in a position to be able to recover from an event. So anyway, just to revisit from that, six layers of security against uh, ransomware, maybe not all those layers are gonna work for you, but that's the benefit of having layers to be able to uh, protect you against events like this. Alrighty, so let's move on and uh, we'll pass the uh, reins over to Jim here. And um, you know, we talk a lot about um, different attacks against systems. Uh, this is sort of an attack against the people, isn't it? Yeah, uh, this one um, popped up in the you know, in my RSS feeds uh, last week. Uh, an article over on FirstPost.com about um, well, really uh, referring to a FireEye report. Though there's a a series of websites that were hacked over the last year that had some code injected into them that um, FireEye has now concluded was probably state-sponsored. Um, and the, it was about 100 websites scattered around the world that had um, 
a profiling script injected into it that FireEye calls Witch Coven. Um, and basically what this, uh, what this script does is it injects uh, a super cookie into the user's browser. Uh, super cookie is um, basically it's a, it's a cookie that uses a number of different storage techniques to try to remain persistent. Um, in fact, they're using a very particular implementation of it that the source code can be found on GitHub, but I'm not going to point directly to it. Um, it's in the paper if you really care. But basically, um, the then they are able to collect information from the browser, and because the super cookie is in there, they can track users' um, behavior. You know what across multiple websites. Um, the they FireEye believes that this is targeted at um, you know particular government employees, U.S. and Western Europe, um, but they can track, you know, folks who uh, visit certain types of sites. Um, even if you tried to anonymize, you know, your browsing, this super cookie gets inserted into the headers when you make a web request, so they can track a particular user from site to site to site. And um, the, there's a there's a nice graphic in the paper itself that shows that of these hundred websites that FireEye has discovered that were hacked over the last year, there's a, a, a wide variety of types of websites. There were 16% of them were governments, 13% of them were embassies, which is one of the reasons why they think it's targeted particular at particular types of government employees. 12% though were higher ed and research. 10% um, were entertainment type sites. Um, you know, it just a wide variety of sites that got infected. Um, but you know, between this super cookie and and the normal types of web logs. Um, FireEye concluded that there's an awful lot of information that these guys can can determine about a, about the individual. You know, they can they can tell you know what OS they're using, what browser they're using, what version of you know various other software on the system, Java, you know, Microsoft Office, Adobe Reader, Flash, Shockwave, whatever. Um, they and by between what they can get out of out of their what their super cookie passes back and what you can get out of just normal web logs, you know your refer field and that kind of thing, um, they believe that the this is intended to be used to target you know particular government officials or executives who from the US or, or Europe who have interest in or potentially are traveling to you know Russia or the, or the Middle East or Africa so it, it, it seems to be a, a nation state uh, actors that are at work here and what their ultimate goal is 
that's not clear yet, but it, it seems to be a pretty sophisticated operation. Yeah, very, very much so. You know, and, and this sounds like I, I, there are a few things here. First of all, I mean, that when we, I, I guess my bias perhaps, when we talk about reconnaissance in, in terms of cybersecurity, my tendency is to think in terms of scanning a network. And this is a case where it's actually almost turning the, turning the activity around. It's a case where they're gaining reconnaissance about potential targets by basically through a subtle infection in a sense. And so uh, I, and I presume it makes it very difficult to determine who that target is. That is, unless you actually have access to their activities, you wouldn't necessarily know that. As you said, you're absolutely right. It is kind of the reverse of the, the reconnaissance we're used to in defending an enterprise. Um, these guys are, uh, as I said, they've infected a wide variety of, of websites and, and then hopefully they are hoping to, you know, correlate the data that they get to be able to, um, you know, narrow down and pinpoint particular individuals that they're interested in attacking. And there is going to be some collateral damage. Some, you know, innocent people are going to get this super cookie and uh, injected into their their browser, and and that's one of the ways that FireEye actually became aware of it, is that they found uh, signs of this super cookie uh, in web traffic from a, a wide variety of folks that just uh, happened to browse to one of the hundred infected websites that they're aware of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, perhaps that's where you were going that, that was, was where a, I was going, yeah. yeah there's going to be a lot of noise in there it's very difficult i mean th there may be some bias in terms of the the, the uh, victims but you'd have to know enough about those victims to be able to say you know if, if there whether there's some sort of demographic either geographic or uh, the types of activities they're performing and you know my comment earlier i did <laughs> jim i don't think you had heard but i you know kind of made the comment it doesn't look like uh, you know i guess that um you know, conclusion or, or at least assumption that the uh, that is targeting it's a nation state targeting some government individuals. You know, if it's uh, government organizations, you tend not to find the people with the big money. So they're probably not good targets for monetary purposes. So there perhaps is another purpose. <laughs> well, I I'm, I keep thinking back to the OPM hack and how you know the the the, yeah. the supposition was always that this was not stolen for financial gain this was stolen to gain leverage over people with clearances right and it makes me think maybe there's a larger component that we haven't seen we're seeing the tip of a, a much larger iceberg in terms of gathering information about individuals they mm -hmm. may have the targeting innovation they may know the name to tie to the the tracking id that they've got we just yeah. may not see it yeah good point good point there may be other information available to them that in fact there might most likely is other information available to them that they're uh, that they're leveraging. Yeah, I mean, you you, you think normally a, a website owner is going to do analytics to you know analyzing their their logs to try to figure out the kinds of people that are coming to their site, what they find most interesting, in order to you know produce more of that content to get more people in, whatever, get more advertising. In, in this case, though, the by tracking you know that individuals go to. 17 different websites and they know it's the same person at all 17 th 
they're using these analytics to actually try to zero in and gather more particular information about particular individuals that could then potentially be used to target them. Very good. Thanks, Jim. So, Manny, let's go to you. Let's talk a little bit about, well, first of all, I have a question for you. Yes. Is talent something you're born with or is it something you learn? That's a good question. All right. <laughs> we'll probably spend a whole show talking about that one, right? Um, so yeah, so this this story, uh, I I came across this story, and uh, and obviously it was an interesting story. So you know, I, I spent a little time digging through this one, um, but it, it basically um, it talks about this this cybersecurity uh, gap that we've got in in bringing in you know uh, skilled professionals into mm -hmm. the into the field. Um, and then and it obviously goes goes into talking about uh, the, um, the the part that women play in this whole thing as well. So um, it, it basically starts off with with this quote from from The Onion, which we all understand is, you know, quite a sarcastic, um, you know, um, website. And, you know, and so they basically went on to say that um, that China was unable to recruit hackers fast enough to keep up with the vulnerabilities in U.S. security systems, which, you know, uh, it, it's, it's quite funny. And, you know, you always, when you read stuff on The Onion, you know that there's at least a little tinge of truth in the stuff that they're talking about. Yeah. So um, with that said, it, it goes into a bunch of statistics about this this gap that we're seeing um, and so I'll go through a little bit of the statistics first and then we can talk about you know you know what some of the solutions are and what they're, they're working on so okay. um, so according to the um, the cybersecurity status report uh, the 2015 cybersecurity status report 86% um, of the of the over 3400 uh, business professionals that were surveyed believed that there was actually a shortage of skilled cybersecurity professionals. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, and that's that's a pretty big number. 86%, you know, already are believing that that's a problem. They're already seeing it. Um, Symantec goes on to say that uh, there are 300,000 uh, unfilled cybersecurity jobs, and this is estimated to grow to anywhere between a million and a million and a half by 2020, which is just a staggering number. Yeah. Um, you know, so you can already start to see sort of the, the numbers that, you know, really are highlighting the, the problem that, that, is, that there is here. Um, and then there's a study by uh, Raytheon and the, the National Cybersecurity Alliance uh, published in, in October that says that 67% of men and 77% of U.S. women said that um, no high school or secondary school teacher um, ever mentioned a cybersecurity career to them, mm -hmm. you know. So it's not something that is sort of being um, looked at, at, you know, at those schooling levels. So it's not something that's being brought up, which is, you know, obviously a problem. Um, and then it says, furthermore, the 62% of men and 75% of women said that no classes uh, are offered uh, offered the skills to pursue these actual um, mm -hmm. cybersecurity. Uh, jobs um, so that's a problem you know mm -hmm. um, and then uh, according to ISC squared which we all know 10% um, of the information security professionals are women so you know so that's on only 10% right 
right? Yeah. So that's that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. um, Certainly biased. Exactly. It's biased. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so it goes on to say that you know they're they're laying out some of the some of the problems with with this particular field. Well, some of the problems is with the training that's offered. Mm -hmm. So, and I think we all know that a lot of the training that is offered in this field, first of all, is very expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, so classes that you know week long classes range upwards of five thousand and, and above. For, They're priced for corporations to pay for. Exactly. No question. Yep. yep. Um, and even entry level stuff even costs you know multiple thousands of dollars. So mm -hmm. folks who are thinking about being interested in, in a career may hesitate a little bit knowing that they may have to shell out money for something that maybe I'm not quite sure that I'm going to be interested in. Um, now, on the contrary, I think there's probably a lot of resources out on the internet, free resources out on mm -hmm. the internet. Um, well, I was going to say, these high school students, they, gotta be, they, they get most of their information from YouTube. Exactly. We're on YouTube. Yeah, so, exactly. Watching. Exactly. <laughs> so, Hopefully they're no, watching. So I think, I think you know, that, that argument could, you know, could be argued that there's yeah. quite a bit of free stuff out there that you can at least get the taste yeah. to know before you plunk out that money mm -hmm. that, hey, yeah, this is interesting to me. I think I could like doing something like this. So, yeah. um, so you know, they go on to say that the, the, obviously the, the industry needs more skilled professionals. And and women remain an unrealized potential in this mm -hmm. in this field. So yeah. um, there's a couple of things that they go into which I, I wasn't aware of, which was good. So um, so the Dakota State University is now offering a, a doctoral uh, degree in cybersecurity. So mm -hmm. it's a doctorate of science in cybersecurity, which is something new. Um, and uh, and in October of this year. Uh, SANS launched the Cyber Talent Immersion Academy for Women, and it's basically an academy to fast-track women into this field. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty intensive um, curriculum, and at the end of the curriculum, they end up exiting it with a with a GIAC cred. So it's pretty uh, it's a pretty good. Uh, yeah, well, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I, I I can't help but think that this is something that really needs to start much earlier that is before high school absolutely you know I, I remember Matt. maybe you remember such a time okay when you bought a computer and there may have been an application for it but pretty much what you need if you wanted to do something with that computer you had to actually write a program hmm. and you know we talk about cybersecurity as a discipline in itself but I think ultimately what it really comes down to is understanding computers understanding networks and I mean, that's sort of a prerequisite to any of this. Yeah. And so really, I think the question becomes, and it was, I think, kind of opportunistic. They used CS, cybersecurity. It was, you almost really need a foundation of computer science as a beginning point. And um, at least that's my point of view, is that it's, it's those foundation skills. You know, if you want to be good at sports, you learn to run and throw. Yeah. <laughs> and you can be good at a lot of sports with some adjustments in your skills, and it's the same thing here. I think if um, in the you know cybersecurity world, if you can write programs, if you can understand where the weaknesses are in those, and start building a skill set around that, I think that's uh, that's a good place to start. So yeah. I don't know that it's necessarily a fault that we don't have cybersecurity programs in our secondary schools. 
I think it's more an issue that we need to get people right at the roots. You know, when you buy a computer today, a programming language isn't even available on it unless you go out and seek that out. And so yeah. I, I would say the opportunity or basically making those things more accessible to folks. So that's one point of view. On the other hand, I think the opportunities are much, much better now. That is, all you have to really do is get an inkling of an interest. And there are all kinds of resources available to us today right. in the open source community with tools, capabilities, forums to be able to exchange information and hopefully get the right kind of positive influences that you become a security practitioner as opposed to a <laughs> getting in trouble. Well, that, that, <laughs> so, that makes me think a lot about this. Um, as you were, I was thinking of, of Ed's top 10 um, um, attributes of a good CISO. Yeah. And the first one is encourage mischief. Yeah. Now, I think that there's a certain amount of that that has to be a permitted for someone who wants to learn. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I know when I was growing up and learning computers, there were things that I got into that you know I probably shouldn't have been doing. Mm. Uh, but I learned about it, and it got me excited about what I was doing. But, we all do that as well, teenagers, that's, right? That's just part of that's, that's, <laughs> growing up. Instead right? of like you know staying out late and smoking yeah. behind the, the bowling alley or whatever it was, yeah. I was playing with computers. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I know I agree with you. There are a lot of good resources out there for kids. I think things like Pico CTF, which basically is meant as a, a high school level CTF mm -hmm. to start you off with very basic programming problems and, and hacking problems and work your way up, mm -hmm. is really cool. Um, but I think there's still a little bit of distrust, and I, I'll explain. Um, I think that the, the perception is that you give kids the, the tools to hack. What you're giving them is permission or you know, you know, implicit permission to go out and cause the kind of trouble that a group like a Lizard Squad or mm -hmm. Anonymous does. That's the I think that you need to have educators who understand that, yes, I'm teaching these kids about security problems, but I'm doing it in a responsible way, the way like if you were teaching them karate and you tell yeah. them first, don't go out and beat somebody up. Self-defense is a, is a very good analogy, I and think. And there, there's yeah. a mindset and a, and a bit of, of responsibility that has to be cultivated along with it. I think there's a mm -hmm. right way to do it. I just don't know that I've seen it yet. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I think all aspects of this, I think the, you know, it costs too much is sort of a traditionalist point of view. Yeah. Uh, and, and notice here, I think there's a distinct, I mean, there's the, the opportunities, the career options, the choices, I think that's still sort of separate from gender. Now, on the gender topic, I agree with you thoroughly. I think uh, the opportunity to bring more women into the, in the career field, you know, and I think, I think the diversity in gender, as well as nationalities, backgrounds, yep. are very valuable aspects of this. Uh, so just one, one last thing on the, on the, the programs that I had mentioned earlier. Um, so, you know, just a, a caveat on those. We haven't we haven't tried them ourselves. Mm -hmm. Don't know much about them. So you know, do do your research before obviously signing up for any of those mm -hmm. um, because we haven't uh, we haven't done ours yet. Yeah, point, absolutely. So. You know, for anything, this this is uh, I mean, like we said, there are lots of opportunities that are out there. These are a couple of examples. Yep. Uh, where these were shared in the article as a Correct. part of the article, yes. right? Yep. So yep. Uh, we're just really conveying the information. Yep. Thanks, Manny. Yep. All right, so Matt, let's uh, talk with you a little bit here, and um, yeah, I, I, hopefully I'm not stealing any thunder here, but you know, I think we perhaps have belittled the fact that we talk about the you know internet connected refrigerators when the televisions are connecting a lot faster than the refrigerators are. So, mm -hmm. 
they're certainly not without their faults. Sure. So perhaps I, you can share us. I can. <laughs> with us. Uh, some very interesting research coming out of the vast labs. Uh, you're, 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 you're right in saying that internet connected televisions are a much faster growing market, I think, than internet fridges. People have a reason to connect their, their TVs directly to the internet, mm -hmm. watch all sorts of streaming content, maybe use it as a, a front page for getting weather and stocks and news as well. Mm -hmm. I, can, I see that, and I, I, I see the appeal, definitely. Um, that being said, the same sort of, of little things to worry about apply. So as I was saying, Avast has a, an IoT lab where they've mm -hmm. got a whole bunch of devices hooked up to the internet and they, you know, they boot them up, they see what behaviors they can see, and it turns out that they found uh, a Vizio TV that they were able to do some man in the middling on uh, mm. and find out some very interesting things it was doing in the back end. Um, I really like this article. I like the way they step through bit by bit how they, they you know, enumerated the surface of the device and figured out here's where we'd like to be attacking, here's why we can and can't do it, here's a mm -hmm. way that I can find another way around it. So they, they, they found out that the certificates for HTTPS were not being validated, very common flaw that we've seen in IoT devices, mm -hmm. but there was something holding them back. Well, that's not even necessarily an IoT specific thing. Oh, that's it's not. We've yeah. seen a lot of applications that just yeah. simply. It just feels to me problem. like I've read this, I've read this <laughs> sequence of steps before, yeah. and I'm like, okay, no, I, you did this, somebody must have done this with a router or something else like that yeah. recently, so it, it feels very familiar. So, just a, a quick caveat here or, mm -hmm. or, or, or tangent encrypting traffic really doesn't do anything for you mm -hmm. unless you know who you're talking with. Absolutely true. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens here. You know, if, you're, if you can't validate that certificate, yeah. which the television was not doing, yeah. um, you could be talking to anybody and no one else can listen, but heck, you know, who are you yeah. talking to? So in their lab, they were able to you know, redirect the traffic for DNS mm -hmm. so they would speak to a, a specially controlled attacker server and then set up that HTTPS connection, take a look at the contents. Mm -hmm. And of course, the next thing you would try and do is try and tamper with those contents, but they had a checksum on that, which was based on a, a specific MD5 salt, which mm -hmm. they did not have. Right. Uh, but then the article goes on to explain how they were able to get command injection on the device through, and I love this, um, the configuration for the SSID for the wireless network, they were able to put in like you know shell commands into that, and then they couldn't figure out what the output was, so they pumped the output of those commands into ping and sent that across the network and were able to figure out what the output of those commands was wow. by watching the network traffic. And I'm like, this is, this is too cool. Um, now this is talent. Like, we're just talking about talent. This is talent right here. <laughs> it's, it's knowledge plus enthusiasm? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And you know, to, I guess to answer the question, it's, you know, there, there are certain things that you're born with. That, and, and, but it's what you do and being basically emphatic, obsessive about finding these kinds of things, that's really the difference. That's what really makes talent. Go ahead. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so to, to go on, they were able to figure out where the, the television mounted its USB drive based on things they were figuring out. You know, does this file path exist? Does this exist? Mm -hmm. Does this one exist after I plug the thumb drive in? Or does it exist? And they figured out that they could copy all the files out of the television onto the thumb drive, right. do more research, and eventually find that salt and then tamper with the, the connectivity. Wow. So it's, it's a lot of steps, but they, yeah. they do explain it very, very well. And what they found is that the television was actually sending out like images that were fingerprints of the content being viewed on the television, which is something that you wouldn't expect if, for right. example, you hadn't agreed to the terms of services for that feature, mm -hmm. it was still being done. Hmm. So they reported this to Vizio. Vizio has sent out a, made a security patch available that the televisions will download when they're plugged into the network. I'm mm -hmm. not clear on the, the, the privacy implications of that 
the right, um, right. That, that that snapshot of what people were viewing if that's been fixed or not but there is a way to turn it off mm -hmm. um, all right, good. Well, you know, a, a few things here. One, you know, we've had a number of cases where IoT things have had security problems. This is a case where, I mean, they went through some trouble to find these security problems, but they found the security problems. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that Visio in this case was responsive to the security problem and had the patching capability that was passive to the end user, mm -hmm. really significant differences to Definitely. some of the things that we've seen. Um, as IoT devices, so I, and I, I keep wanting to make that distinction between those Internet of Thing devices that aren't prepared to be connected to the network and those that are. And this is a case that appears to have handled it much better. For me, I think the difference is that these internet-connected televisions have a user interface that's readily available. Now, if someone, true. if you were to try and patch someone's you know home router blindly without notifying that it was going on. There'd be problems with that. It would crash potentially mm -hmm. if it wasn't done properly, and you'd have all sorts of trouble. People saying, "All oh, of my router's broken. I have no idea why." Now, mm -hmm. if someone has a television, they can say, "By the way, there's an update available to your television. We'd like to install it now, please." And you can click the button to say yes, and you should be done in you know a couple of minutes. Well, that is a good point about the uh, the difference between you know the the interactions or the the uh, circumstances around the application that that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. All right, now to like take a little bit of a look at what's been going on in the internet. The first item here is bytes on source port 161 UDP. This is simple network management protocol. And you know we see alerts on this uh, actually quite frequently, but I'm only really uh, reporting on it from time to time. And I just wanted to make, a, I guess, a little bit of a note about a change in activity that we're seeing here. Starting around uh, October 30th, we started to see what I'll say is a clear trend, a density, and the activity on SNMP. And this is reflective denial of service attack activity. The level of frequency that we're seeing this is significant now. The size of it hasn't changed all that significantly. Uh, we're still seeing, you know, occasional spikes up around maybe one gigabit per second. But the trend here that I think is most significant is that the sort of the underlying amount of activity that's taken place has increased frequency for the most part. So it appears that uh, some of these uh, commercial uh, DDoS attack services, or at least one of them, has sort of adopted this as one of its core functions as opposed to sort of an occasional set of activities. Uh, next item here is on is probes on port 179 TCP. This is uh, border gateway protocol. And we had a previous program a couple of weeks ago where uh, we talked about BGP and uh, how attacks could, uh, basically how a hijacking event could uh, leak across the internet and perhaps provide different perspectives depending on where you're looking at. Well, just last week we talked about a uh, hijack event that had taken place in India. And it seems a little bit strange that we're seeing reconnaissance activity on port 179 uh, in this last week. Perhaps somebody decided that they wanted to, uh, you know, see if there are any uh, BGP accessible devices out there perhaps with to see what opportunities exist. Nevertheless, uh, this, is, uh, this activity has originated from a botnet, uh, and the sources are primarily in Mexico and the United States. And we did a little bit of research on this. Actually, John Hogeboom helped with this, and found that uh, it's primarily security surveillance camera DVRs, you know, that class of IoT things, five different brands that were identified that were uh, basically performing a lot of this, uh, of this activity. So. Um, these devices get infected, you know, one of the problems is that uh, there really isn't a good way to fix it. You can reboot the device and it goes away, but then it just gets reinfected again because there's a lot of um, 
scanning activity looking for these devices. So, nevertheless, uh, if you have um, a BGP on your network, you want to make sure that that's locked down and that there's no opportunity for somebody to try to take over a BGP session. Looking at the top 10 most probed ports, at the top of the list we have port 23 TCP, that's Telnet. Uh, we're going to take a little closer look at that. It's become a tradition now to take a closer look at that. Uh, followed by 443 and port 80 TCP, both uh, web and encrypted web. Followed by 22 TCP, we'll take a little closer look at that one as well. And uh, we had a, uh, you know, a protocol jump up 31 spots here. That's uh, port 21 TCP. Uh, that's FTP. It turns out that that's uh, relatively innocuous activity. I'm not even going to bother showing the graph here. Uh, it was a research organization looking for you know, vulnerable devices that are out there. I will make a note, however. It is quite often organizations, perhaps in a support relationship with a vendor, they may have an FTP server, an anonymous FTP server, while they'll upload, upload the images, and uh, to be able to uh, get support. If you're going to go that approach, I don't recommend that. You know, there are a lot of better ways to transfer data these days. Uh, you know, services like cloud services where you can actually authenticate who's accessing to it. Uh, Dropbox, Google, you know, there are a number of them that are available. Um, I, I'd recommend trying to push in that direction. What will tend to happen is on these anonymous FTP servers, if you upload something, there's a period of time where it could get scanned and taken by a uh, malicious hacker. They even can get um, cached on search engines. And so uh, that can be a point of vulnerability to uh, perhaps expose information that you wouldn't otherwise want that to happen. So. Um, since this one popped up on here, I wanted to at least make that point. Oh, by the way, some other ports that are on here, 445 TCP, uh, four, that's uh, SMB, uh, Service Management Block, and uh, 1433 TCP, MySQL Database, excuse me, that's uh, Microsoft SQL Database, uh, 53 UDP DNS, and 3389 Remote Desktop Protocol. So. Uh, the uh, database one, Microsoft SQL database and uh, remote desktop protocol, generally looking for uh, weak passwords. Taking a look at scan probes on port 23 TCP, that's, uh, we're looking at actually a year's worth of activity here. And you know, a lot of times these graphs have a lot of little spikes and things in them. So what I decided to do in this case is put a 10-day moving average on it. And so you can see sort of the trend that we've seen over the last year. And we're really at the highest peak in terms of the number of probes, and not by a small margin either, uh, the highest peak over the last year here. And I don't think, I, I don't recall any time where it's been any higher than this. So um, this is, uh, I think, a significant growth in terms of the number of these, uh, of these probes. And this tends to be the port that these security surveillance camera DVRs are compromised over, as well as a number of other um, IoT devices. Those are generally like uh, home-based routers. Uh, looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, uh, well, we, <laughs> we have an awful lot of them on uh, port 23 TCP. We already talked about that one, uh, but we're going to look at uh, the number of sources probing there. Port 445 TCP, uh, 22 TCP, we'll take a look at that one as well. So looking at port 23, again, looking at uh, a year of activity with, again, the 10-day moving average. Now, this one's a little different than the previous. It is 
we did have a point where we had more sources that were probing on port 23 in the last year but uh, we're approaching that uh, approaching that so on a week by week basis it still seems to be uh, climbing fairly consistently and ever since uh, I guess it was the end of March early about mid-April it looks like the um, we've been basically on an upward trajectory uh, again averaged over over 10 days and then uh, looking at scan sources on port 22 TCP, that's SSH. So again, it's command line access, this one being the encrypted mode of that. Uh, we're looking at uh, 30 days of activity here. And uh, what we see are several sources and cloud services here. That is most of the sources. And we're you know, seeing a spike here going from you know, relatively 2,000 sources and jumping up to around uh, 11,500 sources. So uh, that's a pretty significant increase. And uh, again, many cloud service providers involved with this. So it looks like I'm, I'm speculating a little bit that perhaps web servers are being compromised and then used in a botnet to uh, perform this activity in some manner. And if we look at port 22 over the last year here, uh, this one is not using the 10-day moving average, but you can see the, uh, the most recent activity way to the right there. And then uh, it was just around, I, I would say, mid-July, we saw a relatively significant bump in the number of sources. It basically increased about threefold, and uh, that has not settled out yet. So we uh, have seen an increase. It was just, uh, I think, a few weeks ago that we were talking about some uh, uh, home router devices that had exposed uh, port 22 default passwords accessible and then uh, and you know underneath it's a Linux operating system so that the uh, the devices could be exploited and uh, scripts run on those is that the uh, ubiquity story from a while back um, I think it was the air routers but uh, there may be other devices with similar characteristics okay okay so that's our show for today we'd like to thank you for joining us and uh, we'd like to wish a happy thanksgiving for predominantly our united states viewers although if you celebrate thanksgiving in other parts of the world we certain, certainly welcome you to have a happy thanksgiving there as well if you'd like to get in, in touch with us you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com and you can find att threat track on the att tech channel it's on youtube as well as on itunes and you know hopefully the uh you know it's it's generation z now that we're uh, that we're nurturing forward hopefully generation z is still a youtube user and we'll be able to pick up on the program and uh, you know seek out some opportunities in the cybersecurity profession uh you if you'd like to follow us on twitter you can follow us uh, the our handle is at, at att security and uh i'd like to thank you jim you've been quiet for the latter part of the program but i'm sure you'll be back with us thank you manny thank you matt i'm brian rexrode we'll be back next week with a new episode until then Keep your network safe.